0: Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will
1: allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star zero on your tone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce
0: your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer
2: Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Michelle. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's program, Thyroid Cancer, New Trends in Treatment. And today's program is supported by ISI Inc., and I really want to thank them for their support today. And we have a lot of you on the call today. There are over 207 participants on the call today. You come from all of the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have international participants on the call today from Australia, Canada, Kenya, the Philippines, and United Kingdom. So this is a bit of a global call, and we're, it actually is a global call, and we're delighted to have so many of you on the call today. Now, before um, we move on to introduce our first speaker, I just want to ask you each a few questions. Um, It'll take about two minutes. um, And uh, for those of you who are live streaming the call, you'll be able to see the questions and you'll be able to rate the questions. So I'm going to start with the first question. On a scale of one to five, with one the highest rating and five the lowest rating, please select your rating. I understand the importance of staging, Testing and Precision Medicine in Informing the Treatment for Thyroid Cancer in the Context of COVID-19. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand the current standard of care, new treatment approaches, and follow-up care for thyroid cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is I understand the new treatment approaches for refractory thyroid cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And then just two more questions. I understand how to manage the symptoms, side effects, discomfort, pain, and quality of life concerns for thyroid cancer in the context of COVID-19. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And then this will be the last question. I understand the role of clinical trials for thyroid cancer one is the highest rating, and five the lowest rating. So I want to thank you all for participating in these questions. It helps us to understand your knowledge when you come into the program, and um, I really appreciate your doing this. It helps us to better plan programs going forward. And now I'm going to, it's my pleasure now to introduce our first speaker, and our first speaker is Dr. Mio Catano. Um, And Dr. Catano is is Division of Surgical Oncology and Endocrine Surgery, Interim Division Chief of Surgical Oncology and Endocrine Surgery, Mays Cancer Center, University of Texas Health, San Antonio. And Dr. Catano will be addressing an overview of thyroid cancer, including diagnosis and staging in the context of COVID-19, quality of life concerns, the increasing role of telehealth, telemedicine appointments, the importance of communicating with your health, with your surgical team, key questions to ask, and discussion of open notes. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Catano.
3: Thank you very
0: much, Carolyn, for the kind introduction. And uh, first of all, I would love to thank everyone who have tuned in. I think knowledge is power, and it's, it's, you're taking the first step to really understand this disease process and how to really empower yourselves and take charge of of thyroid cancer. So I appreciate every single one of you to be part of this this call and this teleconference. Um, So first of all, um, good news. So thyroid cancer overall has very excellent prognosis, meaning that um, most thyroid cancers are very, very curable. And this is not something that many people think of when they hear the C word, the cancer word is uh, the first thing that many of my patients ask is, is this something that can be cured or not? And the answer is yes. More than 95% of thyroid cancers are completely curable. And, um, and the stay, the main treatment for thyroid cancer is, is by removing it by surgery. So, um, I'm not sure if most of you have already had the diagnosis of thyroid cancer or have friends or family members, but the way people are usually diagnosed with thyroid cancer is is there there are two ways. One is that somebody comes in with with symptoms, uh, so they feel a lump in their throat or a lump in their neck when they or uh, when they're touching their neck or seeing themselves in the mirror, um, and then ultimately that. Uh, leads to additional testing, and um, some people just have this found incidentally, meaning that they have some kind of an upper respiratory tract infection or some something that's completely unrelated. Uh, get some kind of a scan, like a CT scan for for um, for pneumonia or something, and they caught by 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 accident. So there are two ways, um, but to have the diagnosis of thyroid cancer, the the gold standard is to have a biopsy. The biopsy is called FNA. Uh, It stands for Fine Needle Aspiration Biopsy. Um, And so when you see your, your primary care provider, they might, um, send you to see either an endocrinologist who do biopsy, Sometimes surgeons do the biopsy. Sometimes radiologists do the biopsy. It really depends on the institution. But the only way to truly know if this is um, something that's a cancerous growth in the thyroid is to to get this fine needle aspiration biopsy. And once the biopsy is done, uh, it can have multiple different findings. It could either be Definitely cancer, or definitely not cancer, and then there are findings that are kind of somewhere in between. and all those um, findings that are in between could be um, could have risk of cancer anywhere from five to fifteen to even to thirty percent. And then we often also do additional testing if if the uh, needle biopsy result falls in that gray area category additional molecular testing to really have a better idea to see if that nodule or growth in the thyroid is something that can be either watched or it's something that needs to be removed. So when thyroid surgery is offered, um, the reasons are usually for definite diagnosis of cancer or that cancer cannot be completely ruled out. So it's almost like a diagnostic surgery. Um, And then sometimes people may not have cancer at all in their biopsy result, but they have a large, say, a really large nodule or a goiter that is um, causing trouble either swallowing or breathing. Uh, So anything that is causing um, symptoms in the neck, that also warrants um, surgery. So that's uh, part of the the diagnosis for for thyroid cancer. And in terms of staging, um, this is one of those cancers that it doesn't warrant an upfront say a whole body scan unlike other more aggressive cancers uh the main part of the staging is to do an ultrasound um that's when the mass is found and then if there's any concerns for cancer, ultrasound of the lymph nodes are done um and lymph nodes or lymph glands are part of our body's drainage system, the immune system, and they're everywhere in our body uh and um Many cancers, including thyroid cancer, has the tendency to first spread to the lymph glands in the neck. So that ultrasound is done, uh, uh, has to be done beforehand before surgery to see if it has already spread to the lymph glands. So those are the two main parts of the the, the staging of of thyroid cancer. And then ultimately, what really determines what needs to be done uh, further down the line is um, after the surgery. Has already been done, and uh, there is additional analysis on that on that that tumor. And then uh, at that point, usually the endocrinologist or the medical oncologist decide what what type of, type of treatment is is needed. So, um, talking about the treatment of thyroid cancer in the context of COVID nineteen, there is not a lot of data, but some of the data that are available is comes from the um, data from the Covid nineteen cancer uh, consortium that was started last year, and they actually gathered um, different informations uh, from all different cancers, so not really specific to to thyroid cancer and uh, they they did show that there was some delay in diagnosis of of thyroid cancer, especially at the onset of the pandemic, especially um, many of the the diagnostic procedures but such as um, mammograms, colonoscopy, or even needle biopsies, all those testings were put on hold. But this was mostly at the very, very beginning of the, the onset of the pandemic and then also during some of the, the surge um, on of the COVID uh, pandemic. But uh, at least at my institutions, um, everything is is pretty much back to normal um, in terms of doing the, the diagnostic part. And also even for the part of the treatment, uh, currently there're no delays in in performing surgeries but unfortunately you know last summer and last winter when there are the two major uh covid surge uh in texas is that a lot of the cancer um not 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 cancer but thyroid surgeries in general were 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 delayed um because um because of uh they were put on the on a priority list and uh thyroid cancer uh, although they are cancer, they're relatively um, slow-growing. And also on another note is that thyroid cancer, even if it's a biopsy proven to be cancer, if it's less than one centimeter, because they're so slow-growing and the chance of it spreading is so, so, so low, is that it is also okay to, to monitor them. And if there is any kind of growth, then we can do surgery at that time. So this is clearly different from, from some of the other cancers, is that um, we call it this active surveillance, but basically observe knowing that there is presence of cancer. Um, and some patients certainly do not like the idea of having you know cancer in their, in their neck, But there have been many, many studies, um, especially coming out of Japan, Japan that looked at to see how people do people who underwent surgery and who did not undergo surgery and who were just watched. And uh, everyone um, ultimately um, did both of both those, those groups did well. So that's also another um, treatment that's available for, for thyroid cancer. Um, and, and this is where, uh, for COVID-19, the teleco- uh, telehealth or telemedicine appointments became very, very useful, uh, especially for those patients who have already had the surgery. And uh, who are only getting uh, monitoring uh, or who are getting monitored uh, is that a lot of those visits uh, can and um, could and can still to this day be done by, by telehealth to really prevent um, further spread of, of COVID-19 in the clinic setting. And this is not only to protect the patients, you know, like yourselves, but also to pre- you know protect the staff in clinics to, to be exposed to, to many people and prevent overcrowding in the in the clinic setting, and um, as a matter of fact, um, you know, at the very beginning of the pandemic, I switched probably 70% of my clinic visits to to telehealth initially, and then gradually that number started um, decreasing as uh, more and more people were getting vaccinated. But I, um, to this day, I still probably see um, a handful um, of patients in in clinics through telehealth, especially those who who are immunocompromised. And um, for the treatment of of thyroid cancer, uh, people ask, you know, they have asked and they they still ask, is it safe to get treatment for thyroid cancer during the pandemic? And um, uh, the the answer that that I have is absolutely yes. Um, is that you should not delay your your care for for thyroid cancer. Uh, Surgery itself, um, I don't think it it really reduces the the immune system per se, Um, and I'm sure if those who have undergone the surgery, I'm sure you you take the levothyroxine therapy, and um, I I did come across a a paper that uh, assessed if levothyroxine had any kind of interference to the immune system, and actually – not taking that medication um, and having abnormal levels of hormone may actually interfere or or uh, with uh, interact with your immune system. But if you're taking your medication like you're supposed to, then it, it is safe um, to to really uh, go you know uh, go get your care and go outside. And as long as you practice. Social distancing, wear a mask, hand washing, and all the the usual protective uh, precautions for COVID nineteen. Um, so I think the telehealth and telemedicine uh, they are are here to stay. And uh, whenever you are uh, seeing your provider, if that's an option, I think it's a great option, and you should you should really try to to have that 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 telephone or the telemedicine visit if you can, and if that the provider that you're seeing allows it because I think it's a great way to really protect yourselves from from the exposure. Um, and I know things can uh, be a little bit different uh, for telehealth, and uh, some patients actually have insisted on coming in in person because they miss that, you know, the actual, you know, physical exam and the actual physical in-person interaction. But of course, if you feel a lump. Or if you um have anything that actually needs to be checked out physically by a, a physical examination, then of course you need to come in in person. but if it's just a routine annual follow up um I, I think you know it's it's very reasonable to to see your provider through telehealth, and I highly recommend it um, I'm not sure if there are any people on this call who um is was diagnosed with cancer and who has not undergone surgery yet. Um, you know, I am a surgeon, so I'm going to talk about a couple of things of what you sh- should ask your, your surgical team before undergoing surgery. So, um, first of all, you should ask your provider if you even need surgery, right? That's the most important thing because, like I said, a, a, a nodule less than a centimeter can be watched. Um, and uh, also, there are other um, available Treatments, not necessarily for cancer per se, but other types of nodules that are not cancerous can be treated with um, other other treatments like radioactive iodine, or um, some institutions are um, are doing ultrasound ablation. But this is not for cancer. But but in general, I'm I'm talking about if you're offered thyroid cancer, you should always ask your surgeon to see if it's if there are any other options other than a surgical intervention. Uh, you want to ask. Um, the experience of the surgeon, how long he or she has been doing thyroid surgeries, how many surgeries they have done. Um, And then also what's really important is how much of your thyroid needs to be removed, whether um, half, um, so the partial thyroid surgery, so partial um, thyroidectomy, or if the entire gland needs to be removed, so that's called the total thyroidectomy. Uh, And then you should ask your surgeon pros and cons on each approach. And then there are also newer um, surgical approach like robotic-assisted thyroidectomy. Um, Unfortunately, I I trained in the era that uh, we were not doing robotics for thyroid surgery, so um, uh, our institution does not offer that, that, but there are a handful of institutions in this country that offer um, robotic-assisted thyroid surgery. So if that's something that you are interested in, you should definitely look into that. Um, and whether the surgery is going to be outpatient or inpatient, what kind of medications you have to take afterwards, um, how to prepare um, the day before, um, And uh, there are usually a, a team of um, providers and uh, clinic staff that that should give you a packet with all the, that information inside. And then what's also lastly, what's important to ask your team is what kind of symptoms or complications you expect uh, after the surgery. If, if any. Um, so those are the things that you should ask your surgeon before you um, undergo a thyroid operation. And last thing very briefly I'm going to touch on is the, um, the I'm going to discuss about the open notes. Um, I'm not sure if you are familiar with open notes. It's a system that's federally mandated and it's, it's relatively new. I think it's been around for the last couple of years or so is that um, um, patients like yourselves have access to the results uh, of blood work, or or scans, or or even clinic visit notes um, uh, right away through you know the Epic MyChart or any other kind of electronic platform, and um, I think the the system, meaning the providers and the hospitals, I don't think we were quite equipped to really handle that that situation because there are times that it can create quite a bit of of confusion and also questions, um, as well as sometimes um, anxiety, and and they can cause, um, you know, patients like yourselves to really not really know how to interpret the result. Um, Unfortunately, this is a a system that was, you know, mandated um, to all um, healthcare systems across the country, Um, and uh, the way that I, you know, uh, we have been handling our institution is mostly, you know, once the patients get their, the their their result is to not to uh not to really not that not to pay attention but to really read it and if there are any kind of concerns or questions to reach out to the healthcare providers instead of you know really holding on to that result and, and uh try to come up with, you know, many, many different ways to interpret the result yourselves is that healthcare providers and the team of doctors, nurses um, and the staffer they're always available to answer your questions. So if your results uh, become available and you have access to them is that try please try um, not to overread the results. Um, don't take it too hard sometimes some of the reports are even not accurate. Uh, it's not uncommon for me to have to talk to the radiologist to, to have them fix the result. I, I look at all the scans myself. Um, so, if there are any questions or concerns, please do not hesitate to reach out to your your health uh, provider the provider and their team so thank you very much for your attention um and uh, I'm going to uh, pass on the the mic to dr Mr Ki Oh
2: thank you so much uh, Dr. Katano. That was really outstanding and wonderful um introduction to today's program and um covering a lot of important things for people to know and really going into much detail, which was so helpful to everyone. And I I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A, and and thank you so much. Um, And our next speaker is Dr. Christoph Misikowicz, and Dr. Masikowicz is Associate Professor of Medicine, Hematology and Medical Oncology, ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, Clinical Director of Research in Head and Neck, Clinical Director of the Center for Personalized Cancer Therapeutics, CPCT, uh, the Tisch Cancer Institute, Chairman of the Oncology, Pharmacy, and Therapeutics Committee. And Dr. Misikowicz will be addressing how precision medicine and testing inform your treatment options, updates on treatment options, including new and emerging treatments and clinical trials, new treatment approaches for refractory thyroid cancer, what's new in the prevention and management of treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort and pain, and guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including technology and prepared list of questions. It's now my pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Misikowicz.
3: Uh So, uh, good afternoon, good evening, or good morning, so depending where you are. So, uh, I just want to welcome everybody. I can disclose my background to kind of, I'm a little bit closer to thyroid cancer because uh, as you maybe you can hear, I have a little bit of accent, I'm Polish, so I've been exposed to Chernobyl. So I was in Poland when the Chernobyl happened, some of you probably saw the show, so I remember drinking the iodine when it happened, so uh, I always think about myself about thyroid cancer. I, have, I don't. I never had one, but obviously I'm in the high-risk category, so thyroid cancer is kind of close to my heart because my family, that's obviously the high-risk category myself. And I'm going to kind of take you on the kind of a historic approach to thyroid cancer, the treatment, and I have kind of the reason for this, to kind of take you on this journey. So, thyroid cancer can be divided in two or in three types, and I'm going to be focusing primarily what it's called a differentiated thyroid cancer. And you may hear papillary, follicular; those are the the typical um, terms. or Uh, subtypes of thyroid cancer uh, that belong to this category. However, there are some other ones. They're rare, but they still, you know, they can happen. One of them is called medullary thyroid cancer. I will cover this a little bit at the end, and anaplastic thyroid cancer. So let's focus on the uh, thyroid cancer that is uh, differentiated, as it's called. I see patients, I would say, most of the time after the surgery was not successful. Uh, meaning that despite the surgery, the cancer came back. And uh, many times, even between the they see me there is some other treatment uh, that I'm not part of. It's called radioactive iodine. So uh, there is some uh, kind of other treatment that is handled by endocrinologist and uh, nuclear medicine that is given. And if all those treatments, they kind of are not very successful and the cancer keeps coming back, this is the situation, this is the moment that the patient, they see me, and we call it iodine refractory thyroid cancer. And it can be metastatic or can be local. So basically, the surgery was already done, the iodine was given, and unfortunately, was not successful. So historically, when the patients like this uh, would come to our office many, many, many years ago, um, the only treatment that we had it would be chemotherapy. And the drug that was actually approved was called Dr. Rubison. And this drug had very, very bad fame uh, because it was toxic, not only for thyroid cancer patients, but it's one of those drugs that uh, no matter where we use it, basically, it, it gives many side effects. So what was happening with many, many patients that most of them, they were not even treated. So we were doing absolutely nothing. There was no other treatment that could have been offered, and the only one that was in existence was, was, was this toxic chemotherapy. And that was the only chemotherapy agent that was approved for many, many, many years. And then in 2013, there was the first drug that was approved. Uh, it's, a, it's a pill. It's an oral drug called serafinib. Uh, and basically, patients given this drug, basically what we were able to do, we were able to slow down or sometimes shrink the cancer. And obviously, that it was the revolution in thyroid cancer because previously, as I mentioned, we just had the chemotherapy. Sorafenib uh, uh, is a drug that uh, targets, as we call it, attacks multiple receptors in the human body. So it's not very selective. It's kind of you can you can kind of imagine that let's say there is ten doors that this drug opens, and we don't know which of them is responsible for the response. And opening some of them can lead to side effects. It's a very kind of a broad approach because uh, obviously it's not very highly selective. It kind of targets many targets, as we, as we say it. And two years after, we had another drug. So in 2015, we got another medication called Lenvatinib or Lenvima. And I have to say that it was even bigger revolution because not only we got the second drug, but this drug could be used in patients that already received serafinib and unfortunately, the cancer progressed, but it was also uh, could be given in patients that we call a treatment-naive. And the response rate with this drug is very, very, very high. So most of the patients, they do respond to this medication, and the mechanism of action is very similar. So meaning that, let's say there's 10 doors that this drug can open. We don't know which of them they contribute to response, and some of them they lead to side effects. And because this drug can be challenging, and I'm being honest, it leads to some side effects, I think it's better if it's given by somebody who has experience. And the reason that I'm saying this many times, the patients they come in, let's imagine hypothetical patients, that let's say it's asymptomatic. So they have a cancer, and we're about to start this treatment. Many times, this medication will lead to side effects. So you can imagine, if you went to see the doctor and you felt perfectly fine, I'm starting the medication and you're not feeling fine, you're going to be disappointed. And I always warn my patients, I say, listen, with this drug, what happens, we have to find a dose that's going to be customized for you because we have to start with the high dose and as we're going to try to de-escalate the treatment to find a dose that is, on one hand, efficacious and it shrinks the cancer, but at the same time, it's tolerable. Because about three-quarters of the patients, they have to be dose-reduced, but even though if they dose-reduced, they still benefit from this drug. So having somebody who has experience with this drug, kind of giving this information up from, don't be disappointed. When it happens, we're going to find a way how to handle this, and we can find a compromise. And this drug is given to, to a large number of patients that they have thyroid cancer. A few dilemmas that we have those tracts, when they were tested, should be given only to thyroid cancer patients, as I just mentioned, that can be indolent, meaning that it can be slow-growing, should be given only to patients when the cancer is enlarging in size. So if, let's say, we have two patients, and sometimes there are some exceptions of the rule. One patient has a thyroid cancer and the cancer is not growing, and let's say there are only two small lesions and they're not changing the size, and the other one they are, so they, we should consider giving this drug only to do one that the cancer is progressing, meaning that it's emerging in size or there is new lesions. So I just want to mention that those two drugs, sorafenib um, and endovatnib. Uh, I said that they target many, many receptors. So they're not very selective, but they still do work. And I, just, I don't want you to feel that they're kind of inferior. But what was happening after, and this is kind of the new discovery when it comes to the thyroid cancer, and I'm going to use the metaphor. If you're going to imagine a cancer as a room, that probably maybe you're sitting right now where there's a door in this room, and let's say there is a lock. And the only way to enter the room is you have to open the door, but you have to use the key. And there are a few situations. The door has the lock, and if the door has the lock, I can try to see if I can match it with the key. And if it's gonna be a perfect match, I can open the door, this is the first situation. The second situation is that there is a lock in the door, but my key that I have, is not gonna be a perfect match. And you can imagine I can be standing with this key all day long jiggling in the lock, but it's not gonna do much. And there is a third situation that the door has no lock. So I can be standing with the key outside, but it's not gonna do anything. And I gave this metaphor, because there's something in the thyroid cancer called mutation, and this is the lock. So basically what can be done from the cancer that was actually removed from your body, we can test what kind of mutations the cancer has, and those mutations, let's call them the lock. And I can sometimes match it with a perfect match with a tablet, with the pill, and it's highly selective. So you can imagine as we have, I don't know how, how many people in the audience, probably the door that you in your house can be only open with one key and it has to be a perfect match. So that's why it's so critical to find those mutations and it has to be a perfect match. And I'm going to give you some names of these mutations. They're going to sound a little bit strange, but just hearing the sound, you're going to kind of understand what I'm trying to say. So let's say the first mutation is called NTRAC. The mutation is called NTRAC and I can match it with a pill. That belongs to the category called NTRAC inhibitors. Inhibit means slowing down, stopping. So, NTRAC, NTRAC inhibitors. So, that was one of the first mutations that we found out can exist in thyroid cancer patients. And there are two medications that are approved, but something that I want to say in those medications. At some point, I'm going to be talking about clinical trials. Many of those clinical trials that I'm going to mention now only had 20, 30 patients in the trial. You can imagine that this trial was in, run in many countries. And I'm saying this, that each patient that decides to participate in the clinical trial counts because even though the small number of those patients participated in the study, the FDA, say, they said there is enough evidence to approve the drug. So that's why when it comes to n mutations, those studies were done on the small number of patients but they were so powerful when it comes to the efficacy. They shrink the cancer in most of the patients that the FDA, they had enough evidence to say, I think those drugs should be approved, even you only had a few patients in the study. And we have two drugs. The one is called vitractinib or larotrectinib. My name is pronounced. It's really hard, those names. And the other one is Entrectinib. It's called Roseltec. So we have two medications that belong to this category. And the beauty of this drug, they highly selective. This. this. is one. Those are oral drugs, meaning that in you know era of COVID, when you want to limit the, the traveling between the hospital and your home, you don't have to come for infusion. There is no intravenous treatment. Those are oral drugs that are actually being mailed to your house. So it's easier to kind of manage them even through the televisit. So first, track inhibitors. And the, the other thing is that as the drugs are being more selective, meaning if, as I gave this example, let's say there was 10 doors with the previous drugs and all of them being open. Some of by opening one of those doors can lead to side effects. If you're opening just one, the amount of side effects, most of the times with those highly selective drugs is different from the other ones, meaning that they're less toxic. So A, you have highly selective drug. B, it's extremely efficacious and it's less toxic. So it's a win-win situation. So I encourage all the patients that they have iodine refractory thyroid cancer to A, be genetically tested and then participate in the clinical trial because you can be part of this trial that leads to the results. And you can change not only your life, but you can change so many other ones. Having this in mind, there is another mutation. It's called RET, RET mutation. And we also have two drugs, and one of them is sulprotapnib, Retefmo, and we have proseltinib, Gavredo. And they're doing exactly the same thing. So there is a lock called mutation, it's called RET, and we have RET inhibitors, and they just give you the name of those drugs. So it's a perfect match. And again, those drugs do work. The, um, the results of the treatment are amazing. The response rate is very, very high. Most of the patients respond to the treatment. And three, minimally toxic, so it's another argument, obviously, to be genetically tested. There is a third mutation, it's called BRAF, and we have BRAF inhibitors. The only difference with the BRAF inhibitors is in thyroid cancer, that even though those medications, that they target BRAF, and BRAF mutation, called BRAF inhibitors, they are approved in melanoma and some other cancers, they're so not approved by the FDA, and thyroid cancer. So there is some evidence that those drugs can be effective. So again, I would encourage you to, if there is any clinical trial open and you have this mutation and one of those drugs is going to be tested, that I think you should be part of. There is some other one that's called PI3 kinase and we have another drug. So as you see, we have four mutations that they can be targeted by, by those highly selective medications. And again... On average, when we have a clinical trial that leads to the drug approval, the requirement is that you have to have about three, four, or five hundred, or sometimes thousands of patients for the drug to be approved. But in this case, those drugs were so powerful and they were so non-toxic that even when only 30 or 40 patients were on the study to have be approved, so what I'm trying to tell you, please consider clinical trials because it's a huge chance for you. This is the first line, uh, as we call it. So, meaning when you see the medical oncologist, you were never treated for iodine refractory thyroid cancer. Those are the potential treatment that you can be offered. Okay. What we recently, what we didn't have, we didn't have what we call a second-line treatment. So, let's imagine that the patient receives one of those treatments called Lendima, let's say. And then after the patient progressed with Lendima, we didn't have any FDA-approved drug. And let's say for some of you, maybe you're not that lucky you don't have one of those mutations. And historically, we didn't have any treatment. But recently, FDA, based on the large trial, approved a drug called Tabozapnib in second line, meaning that if you got the drug called Serapinib or Lendvapnib, And it worked for some time and it stopped working, doesn't work anymore, there is an FDA treatment that does work and you can be treated. And another example, this trial uh, and FDA approval was just a few months ago. So definitely you can make a difference uh, by participation in a clinical trial uh, and you can make a difference for us and for patients, maybe some of you. I'm going to pause for a moment when it comes to the uh, differential thyroid cancer. I will come back in a second. Now I'm going to move slightly to medullary thyroid cancer. And the situation is very similar. So there is this cancer called medullary thyroid cancer that is not very common. It can be sporadic, meaning it just happens, and we don't know why. But sometimes you can get some genes that they're going to be passed from your parents, and unfortunately they predispose you to development of this cancer. So... When, when you have this cancer, unfortunately, it's always uh, important to ask if it was sporadic or genetic inherited because if you have kids, you want to make sure, or brothers or sisters and brothers, that you're going to know which of your family members has this gene because this person can at a higher risk of developing this cancer. And then we had a very similar situation uh, as in differentiated thyroid cancer. There is no treatment for many, many, many years and then recently, we had two drugs that were approved called cabozantinib and vandetnib. They're very similar to rafenil and meaning those are the drugs that they open many doors, so they're not highly selected, but they do work and we do use them. But at the same time, we know that medullary thyroid cancer most of the time is driven by the direct mutation. And as you maybe remember from a few minutes ago, I mentioned that in differentiated thyroid cancer, RET mutated patients are treated with RET inhibitors called sulpricatinib or pralcitinib. And the same medications, they can be used in a medullary thyroid cancer. So there is a little bit of the overlap. And the last thyroid cancer that you just want to mention briefly is called anaplastic thyroid cancer. And this is very, very aggressive thyroid cancer. This is the one that I always I have to treat the patient like yesterday because it can be so aggressive. And now we have the treatment that we didn't have any. And the treatment is based on the mutation. And it was approved based on 23 of the patients. So having only three, two, three, FDs they said, there's nothing else we can use. I think it's worth approving this drug. And this drug is really, really powerful. So you can imagine having the cancer that is one of the most aggressive that we see in oncology. And now I can test it for mutation. And it's a rapid test and then I can treat you with the oral drug, with a pill, actually it's two, because we're given two different pills, and patients, they have a significant response. I think, obviously, it's a convincing argument to A, to be genetically tested, but also to consider clinical trials as well. Now I'm going to go back for a moment to uh, differentiate thyroid cancer. Many times when I'm asked, what is the role of immunotherapy, Uh, and thyroid cancer. And immunotherapy is the treatment that we use on oncology for other cancer. Basically, we're stimulating immune system and we're trying to convince the immune system to A, find the cancer as a potential enemy of your body and then fight with the cancer. And in many, many, many cancer, it's a very effective form of treatment. As of now, the results of immunotherapy are not very promising in thyroid cancer, and we don't know why, but obviously can be different in the future. So, As we're going to find new combinations, there is a possibility that we're going to be incorporating or maybe replacing some of the treatments I mentioned, and we're going to be using immunotherapy. But outside of the clinical trials, immunotherapy is not really used uh, in, in treatment of the thyroid cancer. And something that I'm going to mention, we talk about the open notes, and I'm going to give you an example. What can be, for example, a little bit confusing, when you have a thyroid cancer, regardless if you have or you don't have mutation and is iodine refractory or not, there is another treatment that we give, and this treatment is called centroid. And centroid basically is a thyroid hormone, and the thyroid hormone is given in thyroid cancer patients in the slightly higher dose, because what this is gonna do is gonna suppress something that the body produces. It's called TSH. And TSH is producing by our body. And whenever you give the high dose of centroid, the body is not producing as much. So you kind of inhibit it or you stop the production. And the TSH is like a food for the thyroid cancer. So basically by giving the higher dose of centroid, you're starving the cancer. And to put things in perspective, the normal TSH level, is 0.5 to 5 and can be varied depending on the lab uh, lab that you use. So this is the normal limit. But in thyroid cancer patients, the TSH has to be lower, meaning it has to be abnormal. So it has to be lower. So when you get the blood results from the lab, it's gonna say that TSH is too low and it's abnormal. But actually, in thyroid cancer patients, this is what we want. It's desired. This is what actually is our goal. So. I'm going into sometimes open notes that the result that you may see in front of you as abnormal is actually something that we want. So that's why you always have to be very careful as you read those open notes or any kind of information. And I think Televisit gives you an amazing platform that you can set up the visit that you don't have to physically go see the doctor and they can discuss it with you and clarify any issues or any kind of complaints. So. I think, uh, obviously, open notes can serve you and give you some information, but you have to be careful as you're going to interpret them. When it comes to televisits, uh, most of the drugs, actually all of them that I mentioned today, are oral drugs. So it empowers me having a televisit many, many times. You don't have to come physically to see me. And obviously, I'm not trying to to limit my patients from coming. Actually, I want them to come. But at the same time, I understand that, you know, I practice in New York City. The parking lots are expensive, the uh, our space and the traffic and et cetera. So there are many kind of challenges. If they want to see me through the televisit, absolutely they can. And even when it comes to the blood work, I can send the, send them the prescription and they can go to, to the local lab, no matter if it's a lab group or Quest or any other company that you may use or buy a reference. So you can use the local lab Obviously, for me, that you can do the blood work and I can interpret those results. I think the televisit empowers me that I can, and I don't have to, but I can obviously uh, manage you uh, remotely. And obviously, I can only ask for you to come only if it's needed. So I think the televisit gives us another way of kind of following and treating our patients. So, in the end, this is what I'm going to say. I think if you do have. Thyroid cancer, I think you shouldn't be shy and you should ask your doctor, obviously, to give you any kind of information. And because it's not a very common cancer, if your doctor does not have enough information, ask to be seen somebody who specializes in thyroid cancer, and some of those doctors you can see through the televisit. And at the same time, obviously, I encourage you to look or ask your physician if you can be part of the clinical trial, because maybe you do have a new mutation that. The target, the inhibitor, it's only available through the clinical trial. And the only way for you to be treated is by participating in this trial. So you can see there is a benefit for you, but based on the results, you may benefit other patients that may be sitting in this audience. So I strongly encourage you, obviously, to look for clinical trial as well. And with this, obviously, I want to pass it to another speaker. Uh, it's always a tremendous pleasure to be part of this. And I think empowering you with information and being educated about your cancer, I think it's absolutely critical. Thank you very much.
2: Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Sikowitz. That was really outstanding. Just a wonderful presentation. And our next speaker is uh, Ms. Diana Bearden. And Ms. Bearden is an oncology dietitian at the Michael E. DeBake EVA Medical Center. And she'll be discussing nutrition nutrition and hydration concerns and tips. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Bearden.
1: I'm so excited to be part of today's presentation addressing the nutritional concerns in the presence of thyroid cancer. Nutrition and hydration are essential in tolerance to treatment and providing you the energy to do the things that you enjoy. Your diet might be modified during or even after your cancer treatment to assist with managing some of the side effects and helping you get in the nutrition that you need to. Some potential side effects that you may experience include things like dry mouth, difficulty swallowing, fatigue, maybe weight changes, possibly some changes in taste, and decrease in appetite. A dietitian can provide you with the information that you need regarding any diet changes that are needed. They can also give you specific information related to your calorie and protein and fluid needs. And so please connect with your dietitian on your healthcare team. All of the healthcare teams have many members of the team and the is one of those that you can have access to to help you through this time of your treatment. So when you treat nutrition needs are not being met, the body can use protein or muscle stores for energy. And one of the challenges with that is that Oftentimes, that'll cause you to feel even more fatigued. It may even increase your risk of falls, and um, it'll weaken you. You won't be able to do the things that you used to do with the endurance that you used to do them, so maintaining your weight is very important. So oftentimes, when side effects come up, it's very important that you talk with your healthcare team as soon as possible. Oftentimes, there are medications that can assist with the side effects, and letting your team know sooner is better. If you're experiencing any of these side effects that are interfering with your eating, please let them know as soon as possible. Take note of those foods that are giving you the most challenges so we can help um, help you better in knowing where you're struggling. Hydration oftentimes is less left off the list and we forget about this um, in the midst of trying to make sure that patients are eating enough, but dehydration is very serious. It can cause increased nausea, fatigue, even make you feel dizzy. Fluids are anything that is liquid at room temperature, so things like water, milk, and sports drinks. A general guideline is most people need between eight and ten eight ounce glasses of fluid a day. And treatments such as radiation can actually increase your fluid needs, so talk with your healthcare team about that. In closing, there are several members of the team. The dietitian is one of them and we're all here to help you through this journey. Please reach out to us and let us know sooner than later. Thanks so much. I'm going to hand my line back over to Carolyn, and I appreciate being part of this workshop today.
2: Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Beard, that was excellent and so important for people to be aware of these tips in terms of um, taking in adequate fluids and also eating appropriate foods really important for your well-being. And um, I'm going to say a few words about the services of Cancer Care. I'm Carolyn Messner. I'm Director of Education and Training with Cancer Care. And I'd like to talk about our free programs and services Um, And those are provided by oncology social workers. Um, Cancer Care is a national organization, and our social workers are there to um, assist you, and uh, let me describe the ways so they can assist you. Um, we do have um, a, a, a number that people call our Cancer Care Hope Line, and um, we also can, people can go to our website. Many people call our Hope Line, and they're connected immediately to one of our oncology social workers. And usually people have a specific question or concern and are requesting support and help in, with, with their concern. In addition we also offer online support groups which are really terrific for everybody nationally because it means that um if you have thyroid cancer you might be able to join a thyroid um online support group or if you are um you know if you're um coping as a as a caregiver for someone um we have programs for caregivers so we have online support groups for all ages for young adults older adults um and all types of cancers and all different situations um so that um, those are very helpful to people, and um, people just find them very, very helpful. In addition to the online support groups, we also offer practical and financial assistance. And um, we also have a copayment foundation, which allows us to help people with the cost of their treatments. And those are much larger grants um, to help with actually the, the cost of some of the treatments themselves that are very expensive and that may not be covered by either Medicare or your insurance. And we also um, offer um, case management. And what does that mean? It means that if we don't have a resource that you need, we will connect you to a resource. We don't just give you a list of resources. We actually will take you virtually to somewhere um, and see if they can meet your need. A lot of people have issues around, let's say, food insecurity, having adequate food or with paying their mortgage or rent or with um, telephone bills or things like that or all sorts of practical needs that people have. Um, And our case managing team, which is quite large now, will assist you with, with those needs as well. We also run these workshops about 75 per year and we also um, offer publications as well so that's just a thumbnail sketch of what we do now before we move on to the q a we have a few questions to ask all of you so those of you who are live streaming again i'm going to um, ask you just a few questions it'll take about two minutes and then we'll go right on to the q a so please um, get your questions in order Um, and so um, the first question is As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the important role of staging, testing, and precision medicine in informing the treatment for thyroid cancer. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the current standard of care, new treatment approaches, and follow-up care for thyroid cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the new treatment approaches for refractory thyroid cancer. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now just two more questions. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of how to communicate with and work with the healthcare team to utilize their tips and suggestions to manage treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort pain and quality of life concerns for thyroid cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. and this will be the last question. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of participating in clinical trials for thyroid cancer SA treatment option. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. So I want to thank you all for participating in these questions both before the program started and now um, just before we take the Q&A. It gives us a sense of what you knew coming into the program and now what you know as we're um, winding up the program but not yet because we're now moving on to the Q&A. So I'm going to ask Michelle now to bring on all of our speakers and so we may actually um, take your questions and Michelle will explain to you how to queue up for questions.
0: Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then one, on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, please press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. Again, ladies and gentlemen, if you have a question on the phone line, please press star, then
2: one. And we have a question for one of our online participants Um So this a question um, for. Um, so here's a question for Dr. Misikowicz. I had one high dose, two forty six RAI treatment with good uptake in the neck and poorly in the lungs five years ago. How do I know whether I should consider another round of RAI since my disease is progressing in my lungs? If I should, is there an upper limit of the RAI dosage? If you could comment on this in a general way, sure. Dr. Misikwit, just because, sure. of course. Sure. Thank you. Sure. Uh, so, um, even though I'm
3: not the one who is keeping uh, radioactive iodine, I have some knowledge. Obviously, um, my answer has some limitations, but this is what we know. Uh, there is no clear evidence or definition of what is the maximum dose of the radioactive iodine that somebody can receive. During the lifetime, because higher the dose, higher the chance that people are going to be exposed to the side effects. Um, so obviously, uh, there is so many things that have to be considered. If a patient can tolerate a higher dose, and the second, what is the probability that this patient is going to respond? So many times, what we do, we do two things. We do the iodine scan, that is kind of giving you the low dose of the. Uh, iodine, and just to see if you're going to see the uptake in those lesions. And the second when many times we do the PET scan, and PET scan is, is using a different contrast called glucose. And if you see the same lesions that they're not taking the iodine, but they take the glucose, it's kind of giving you a hint that probably this cancer is going to be iodine refractory. Sure. However, I'm going to highly recommend for you to look for clinical trial in which we use some agents to make the cancer sensitive to radiation. We kind of call them resensitize the cancer to iodine. There are some of them that have been tested, and I would encourage you to look for one. If it does exist, I would encourage you to do so. If it doesn't, then obviously there is a possibility that you may have iodine refractory cancer, and I think at some point you should see a medical oncologist and discuss what would be the best way to handle this.
2: Excellent, thank you. And a question for Dr. Catano: What can I expect the day of surgery?
0: Yeah, sure. Um, so the day of surgery, um, you know, every institution can be can be slightly different. But uh, if it's a um, partial thyroid surgery, uh, it is an outpatient procedure, and I still, uh, to this day, I do the the total thyroidectomy as an overnight stay on a 24-hour observation, and they the patients usually go home first thing in the morning. Uh, but some institutions, you know, it, it really varies, but some institutions are, are keeping all thyroid surgery, uh, surgery patients overnight and let them go home in the morning, or some places are discharging all thyroid <laughs> surgery patients the same day. But you usually come in the morning of, so, you know, there is usually no pre-admission. Um, so you come in the morning of, and then you will meet the, the surgical team. If it's an an academic institution, you will meet the, the training doctors and uh, possibly also medical students who might uh, might be observing the surgery and then the, the operating surgeon uh, in the morning. And then you will also meet the anesthesiologist who will go over all the risks and benefits pertaining to, to the anesthesia itself. And then uh, since uh, thyroid surgeries are, um, it can take anywhere from one hour to sometimes if it's a, a very large, Cancer with lymph node involvement can even take, you know, three, four, even five hours, um, depending on how much how much disease there is. So the surgery usually is not a, an all day surgery. So you can be the first, second, or even the third surgery of the day. So that's something that you definitely want to ask your, your team of, of doctors when you're getting all the information about surgery is what time your surgery is going to be so you are not late to your surgery. And they usually tell you to, to come into the hospital two to three hours before um, so you get to meet the entire team. So there is um, there could be some some waiting time in the preoperative holding area and uh and of course, nothing to to eat or drink, so you have to fast the night before after midnight, and uh hopefully most of you don't eat after midnight anyways, <laughs> but uh nothing to drink after midnight, and then you have to um come in um to the hospital fasting and and for for those who have the surgery as the second or the third um case of the day, you know it it can be a long uh, many hours without without eating but um, unfortunately um that's uh, that's usually the 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 systems are run uh, and that 's how the surgeries are done
2: excellent that 's very informative because a lot of people wonder about that and so it's very helpful to spell that out for everybody Thank you so much and um so, yeah, last question for uh dr miss Sikowitz um so if being monitored for a thyroid um, let's see let me try to get this. Being monitored for a thyroid goiter, um, how often would you recommend getting ultrasound biopsies? Is there a potential negative impact of being exposed to too many ultrasound biopsies? How many is going
0: to
2: be? Yeah, that might difficult. actually be a. Oh, okay. Okay. Dr. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks.
0: Yeah. So. Um... I would refer my patient to
3: the surgeon. This is what I'm going (laughs) to (laughs) do.
0: Yeah, so um, ultrasound itself, you know, unlike, you know, x-rays or CAT scan, there is no radiation involved. So the ultrasound, other than having that cold gel, and hopefully most most places have a gel warmer, but other than having that gooey gel on your neck, there is no negative consequence per se for having a multiple ultrasound. But having a, a biopsy multiple times, not that it can can cause any harm, but the more procedure you get done, yes, of course there could be risk of more risk of infection or even uh, hematoma formation, which is kind of the blood you know collection uh, at the biopsy site. So um, for for goiter, um, I, I the, the recommendation is ultrasound, you know, every year, so annually. Um, you don't have to get it done, you know, monthly or even six months, unless there is a growing nodule then some you know, endocrinologist or primary care doctor might order an um, ultrasound you know, six months just to, just to make sure that it's not growing too, too fast. But as long as the nodules are stable, so not growing, then getting the out ultrasound uh, every year is, is perfectly reasonable. And if the nodule or nodules, so if any of them start to grow, that's when you need the biopsy. But if the nodules are not growing, there is no reason to, to biopsy them every time when you get the ultrasound.
2: Oh, very helpful. Excellent. And this is the last question then for Dr. Um, so do I need an endocrinologist, oncologist, or can my regular doctor treat my thyroid cancer? How can I find one near me?
3: Sure. So this is, this is what I'm going to say. I'm going to kind of uh, approach this from a, a little bit of a different angle. Most of the time, most of the time when the patient they develop a thyroid cancer, they see the surgeon, right? And then they establish a long-term relationship with the endocrinologist because this is the person who's going to manage the levothyroxine level and follow up. So usually, uh, most of the time, people, they have endocrinologists already. And obviously, if this is somebody that you like and you trust, uh, I would would say keep this person, keep this doctor, and at some point, you can be co-managed by medical oncologists and endocrinologists. I would say it's possible. If you're going to be just treated with radioactive and you're going to be undergoing surveillance, you don't really have to see medical oncologists. If the endocrinologist that you're going to be seeing, A, you trust and they specialize in thyroid cancer and they have tremendous expertise. Um, And obviously finding the expert, I would say always ask an endocrinologist. If not... Um, there are multiple resources like ATA or, or a, calling any academic institution, I would say, to ask if there is any expert near you that they have a thyroid specialist. But at the same time, I've seen many medical oncologists and endocrinologists working in the community and having tremendous experience. So I don't want to say that uh, local doctors, they cannot manage. I would always ask how many patients with thyroid cancer you have seen manage and et cetera and they can kind of guide you to to the specialist if needed. I'm not afraid to reach out if I don't know the answer, and I would say the endocrinologists, they do the same. Is they This is something outside of their expertise they're going to be able to guide you.
2: Excellent. Yeah, and well, I would, would like the, to, um,
0: okay. yeah, I would have liked to chime in just very quickly, and, and nothing against uh, Dr. Mr. Kowicz, but as a patient with thyroid cancer, hopefully you never have to see Dr. Mr.
3: Kowicz. <laughs> because, oh, yes.
0: You know. <laughs> yes,
3: that's right, yeah. yes, yes, that's absolutely, I always say, uh, you know, I'm the one who kind of is at the end of the line most of the time, so if exactly. you really have to reach yeah, exactly. me, this, this is the time, but at the same time, obviously, there are some unique situations, so, you know, one of the questions was today that if somebody received the radioactive iodine, and there are some clinical trials that we kind of involved at the earlier stage, uh, obviously, or, or you can be part of the clinical trial. So yes, but at the same time, um, I'm kind of a doctor that I'm more than happy to see you. But at the same time, I totally understand that sometimes my um thing to me it's not really necessary. Let's put it this way.
0: Right. It's usually so surgery is the first line treatment. And as long as it's caught early, surgery is it. That's the only treatment you need. And then, but you still need an endocrinologist who will do the long-term monitoring and controlling your uh, levothyroxine levels, the hormone levels, and do the, you know, ultrasound monitoring. Um, So, I would say, you know, endocrinologist is is very, very important and have established care with an endocrinologist. And even endocrinologists, there's so many types of endocrinologists who either specialize in diabetes or who Specializing in osteoporosis, or they're general practitioners who do all sorts of endocrinology. So uh, it's important to find an endocrinologist who is familiar in treating thyroid cancer, just like Dr. Um, Sirkiewicz said. And uh, medical oncologists are sort of kind of the when the surgery didn't work and the radioactive iodine doesn't no, doesn't uh, work anymore. Then that's when the the medical oncologists come into play. And I, I would say as a surgeon is that I also play sort of a, a, a portion, you know, uh, of the, the treatment. We all work as a team, uh, first of all, and we all, you know, communicate with, the, with each other. But in the long run, in the long term, uh, establishing care with a, a good endocrinologist who is familiar with treatment of thyroid cancer is essential.
3: I agree. And as you see here, we, we talk with each other. So if at any point, I have to reach out to the surgeon, and I'm sure the surgeons, will they have a question for me, there's some unique situations. We talk to each other. So, um, But yes, you need one person, and end of your the is the key person.
2: I have to say this has been an extraordinary call. I actually want to thank our speakers for one thing because um, I think um, everyone in the call has had this wonderful opportunity to see um, their doctors at work with each other, how they think and how they work together as a team and their recommendations. And that's so important for each of you to have that knowledge. And then I also want to thank our participants for asking um, such great questions. Now, I know we could go on for at least another hour because there are so many questions in queue, but I do want to wrap this up because I did say this would be an hour program. And so in fairness to all of you, I want to just say a few things before we end the program today. Um, First of all, uh, for those of you who asked a question, for those of you who didn't get to ask a question but have a question to ask, and for those of you who are now thinking of a question that you would have liked to ask, um, we want you to go back to your treating healthcare team. Um with what you learned today and also um the questions either you asked or would like to ask, and see this as a with those who've asked questions as a kind of trial run of back to your treating team and see how they would answer the questions. you can kind of kind of compare notes and what they say that's really important um because they actually know you the very best, so there were some questions that are very. Um, particular to each of you, and we want to be sure that although we answer it in a general way, we want your own healthcare team to address it for you as well, so you have that extra level of knowledge and, and, and understanding. The other thing I just want to mention to all of you is that, you know, um, it is very tempting in today's. A world that we live in uh, with COVID, um, you know, we're sort of there still. We, we have uh, some of opportunities for people to get vac- vaccines, and we have flu season, flu vaccine, all these things are very important at this time. So there's lots of things people can do um, that we didn't have, let's say, a year ago or less than a year ago. So this is really important. However, um, it is tempting to feel someone feel more alone um than um you know than they normally would feel. It's normal to feel a little bit alone when you have cancer or someone alone, but now it's been a little bit bumped up and actually, with the holidays coming and people thinking what should I do um it's really important um for you to bring up your concerns with your healthcare team and to also take advantage of any support programs that are out there from credible organizations so um are also um in addition to um uh, cancer Care, there are a number of other organizations. And, t- and after today's program, probably on Monday, you'll be getting a Survey Monkey, um, an evaluation of what you thought of the program in general. But then in that, there'll also be resources for you to call uh, to utilize to get more help. Um, and we will, we will include those resources. And I do want to say that in addition to our online support groups, we also have wellness circles and other kinds of um, sort of educational support groups that people have been finding very, very helpful. And so we'll mentioned those to you as well, other resources that you can take advantage of um, in terms of just really um, coping circles, things that you can use to really get through these um, still challenging times to some extent. And um, we also partner a lot with ICi, which is a wonderful thyroid um, cancer organization, and we will also have their information for you as well. So, again, I want to thank all of you for your particip- participation today. And um, I also want to wish you a very happy time of the year. This is a complex time of year, but I do want to wish you all we're entering into a holiday time of year, so I want to wish you all... Uh, good wishes and to take good care, and um, we have another program actually on Monday on infection control. For those of you who might be interested in that and haven't signed up for it, you'll be getting more information about that as well. So thank you all, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now
1: disconnect. Everyone have a great day.